Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Matthew Govidia, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. At this year's annual AHIP meeting, Dr. Georgia C. Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association, participated in a keynote panel discussion on championing health and well-being for all Americans. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we caught up with Dr. Benjamin after his session to further discuss key policy, investment, and community engagement efforts in promoting health equity, as well as hear his thoughts on the public health implications of the Supreme Court's recent decision to strike down the concealed gun law in New York. Great to meet you here at AHIP, Dr. Benjamin. Uh, as you were speaking on many of the pressing health issues facing Americans during your keynote, a ruling by the Supreme Court struck down the concealed gun law in New York. As uh, rising crime rates and mass shootings have plagued U.S. public health, uh, most notably in recent months, can you discuss what you know so far on this and the public health implications of this decision? Yeah, I think it's obviously a, a, a very bad decision. In many ways, it expands the original Heller decision around, you know, the right to have a gun in your home to now have a right to gun on the street. Um, in many ways, it takes us to some degree back to the quote-unquote Wild Wild West. Um, and at a time when um, we have so much tension in our country, potential violence, um, police officers being attacked, I, I think it's just, just a really, really bad decision. Um, I think they didn't follow the evidence. I don't think they followed the science um, of what we know. And I think this court is increasingly becoming a court that is being ideologically driven uh, and not using expert advice in terms of making the decisions. And I think that, you know, it doesn't bode well for the court. Um, but, I, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to make everybody who is interested in um, the right to bear arms, the want people to be able to do so safely and to make our community safe and make our job much, much harder. And to follow on that, what do you think it will take to get more Americans to recognize issues like gun violence as well as climate change as public health emergencies? Well, the public actually does get it. You know, um, climate change to start with, you know, increasingly farmers in middle America know that their crops are having trouble. There there are um, extremes of weather. There is heat. Now, you know, um, they can decide that it's not due to climate change, but they know the climate is changing. And the, the big debate is over what the cause is. Now, we know the cause is. It's the burning of fossil fuels. And at the end of the day, we have to get more people to accept the cause of climate change because they really do know it's here. And then we have to be able to convince them, look, there are things we can do both in the short term and long term to change that. Same thing with firearms. Um, you know, we, because we were very concerned about young people dying in automobile crashes many years ago. Collectively, our society got together. We made cars safer, we made people safer in their cars, and we generally made the environment safer for not just people in cars, but for pedestrians on the street. We can do the same thing with guns. We can make guns safer. Um, we can regulate them a lot more heavily than we do. We can make people much safer with their, their firearms. You know, we can make sure that guns are not in places they should not be. They should not be in mental health facilities. Uh, they should not be in the hands of people who are not um, a qualified to use firearms. Um, people need to be licensed, they need to be trained. So we can make people safer with their firearms. Then of course we can make the environment much safer with firearms, with criminal background checks and red flag laws and just broad policies that we know 
um, separate the violent act from the firearm from the people that it injures. And in championing equitable uh, health and well-being for Americans, which was the main focus of your keynote session, can you elaborate on the core messages uh, you sought to get across uh, as it pertains to policy investment and community engagement efforts for public health? So, you know, we know there are really five things that result in disparities in health. Number one, access to care. Uh, number two, differences in the quality of care received within the healthcare setting. Uh, three, differences in health-seeking behavior. Um, differences in um, um, the social determinants, those uh, structural societal things that both enable you to get health um, or impede your ability to be health. So those four things cause disparities. So getting universal health care coverage. I didn't say single payer, although that's one way to get there. Um, but universal health care coverage to make sure everyone's in the system with in and nobody out. And then giving them the tools to enable them to use those health care services. Get rid of the barriers that we have. Um, in those services would be helpful. Making sure that we treat everybody with dignity and respect, um, that everybody has the same access to high quality healthcare services. That means we have to measure them, we have to um, support the, the high quality providers and um, diminish the care that's provided by um, low quality providers. Um, and that's you know a lot of things we can do, we train people, help people improve their skills, get people that really shouldn't be doing the things that they're doing and stop them from doing them. There's a whole lot of things we can do, but we have to do that more assertively. Um, and, and then, you know, health-seeking behavior is driven by a lot of things. Number one, um, you know, if you were treated badly the last time you were in a, a health setting, you're not likely to go back. Um, you know, the... Um, FDA did something really wonderful today by um, saying that Juul has to pull this product from the market because the evidence is now real clear that it is marketed to kids, that kids are using it in record numbers, and you know tobacco um, is a leading preventable cause of death in the country, and vaping um, is um, now becoming part of that because nicotine is an addictive drug, it's in the vaping stuff. Anyway, the point is that, that there are many things we can do to um, help behavior that is um, unhealthy. Um, and, and we ought to be more, again, engaged and do that with some intention. And then this whole range of the social determinants. Um, you know, um, we talked at our panel today about broad policy. Housing was used as an example. And there are many health systems that are invested in helping um, make sure there's affordable housing. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, but it is expensive. It is complex. Um, it does put health systems in the business of being landlords. Um, and quite frankly, um, there are people who inherently their job is to, um, to be in the housing business. Um, and that's fine if someone wants to do that. But simply engaging in policy to make sure that they're supporting affordable housing that they're um, speaking up when people say, I don't want those people in my neighborhood so don't build low-income houses in my neighborhood. Um, dealing with things by making sure that rent's affordable. Um, looking at tax laws to make sure that um, you know, people can afford to live where they live. Deal with redlining, um, all the barriers that we have to keep people out of housing. Those things are important. Getting people to have um, uh, a living wage so that they can actually afford to live where they live. Uh, all those kinds of things um, can 
be done from a policy perspective. They cover a whole lot more people. Um, but at the end of the day, the solution to homelessness is a house. And so any, any of all those things together collectively can do that. And we can do that for food insecurity. Uh, we can do that for education. We can do that for transportation. Um, I grew up in Chicago. And the, um, the, the L system, the, the train system in Chicago, um, there, are, there are platforms, there are stations that have been closed in, in troubled communities. I get those communities are troubled. Um, but how do those people that live there get to work? You know? Um, we've pushed a lot of people out of the central cities into the suburbs with no infrastructure to get them back into the central city, which is where the jobs are. So good urban planning, good community planning is a very important part of what we need to do. Um, and dealing with urban sprawl so that you know we're, we're doing cars for um, and, tra and, and roads to move people, not move cars. Um, so every time we over, overgrow a community, we have to build more roads. Um, and if you follow that, it contributes to urban sprawl, it contributes to climate change, um, it contributes to people spending hours and hours of really unproductive time in their cars. Um, it, it contributes to urban stress. So it's not really productive overall. So the more we can get people closer to their jobs, using mass transit, um, making things more walkable, bikeable, and green, it's better for the, for the environment. So all of these things are upstream solutions. The health sector can play a role clearly as part of that. Um, but it's a, it's a multi-sectorial solution to all these problems. Rent of action and investment was emphasized a lot uh, during the panel. COVID-19 brought a great amount of investment in novel infrastructure, uh, four modalities like virtual care, mental health, uh, and social determinants, as you mentioned. But as we move out of the pandemic, where do you observe gaps in public health investment? And what efforts should be considered to scale up coverage for all Americans? So let me take the coverage then. I mean, you know, the Affordable Care Act needs to be fully implemented the way it was originally designed. That means all the states that have chosen not to expand Medicaid coverage need to do so. It also means, in my view, that the things that we did during COVID to enhance access to care, particularly through Medicaid um, and the health exchanges, we need to keep those provisions in place. That means um, not allowing people to have continuous coverage, um, making sure that we also keep the, the you know, premium support increases we had um, provided because it reduced the cost of care to people and we had got more people covered uh, for the first time under that. Um, I also think that if we're thinking about the basic public health system, we continue to repeat the mistakes of the past. Something bad happens, we throw a lot of money at it, Turns out we don't throw actually enough money and we don't keep it around for long enough. We withdraw the money so the infrastructure goes away and then when something bad happens again, we have to rebuild it, you know? Um, and I think that's our big challenge. Um, we're seeing that a lot. Um, the Commonwealth Fund just we pulled out a report just um, the other day about the federal response and what the federal government ought to do around public health. Um, that, that is a very important report. I encourage people to read it. It basically says the federal government has a role in setting the table, framing public health, its structure. Um, this is a partnership between the federal, state, locals, but it defines what the federal role ought to be. Um, it defines putting someone in charge of, of making sure we rebuild the public health system, telling the federal government that they have a role to more comprehensively and more, more consistently fund the federal portion of the public health system. 
uh, and then require the locals um, to um, to match, give an opportunity for it to be a kind of a match program, so they can, everyone's contributing uh, to this, um, and do that with goals. One of the things our government really doesn't do very well um, is we do a lot of studies, we do a lot of goal setting. We have these healthy people, 2020, 2030 goals, we're going to be out soon. Um, but we don't focus them. We don't say, you know, we don't, we don't have an annual report, Health of the Nation, where the Secretary of Health gets up and says, here's what the nation's goals are, here's what we've met, here's what we've done well, here's what we've not done well. Um, they, they bleed that information out over the year uh, in a really unproductive way. Um, but it doesn't, you know, coordinate the efforts of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the nation to focus on a few things, to move us in a positive direction. Um, and I pointed out that under COVID, we've had at least a, lo a year's loss of life expectancy. And then for uh, minority communities, anywhere from two to three years loss of life expectancy. And that's a really good thing. And you made a comparison during the panel of your experience involved with Medicaid and the stark differences in attention you observed uh, during public health meetings compared with your time as a secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Uh, in diving into those meetings at the federal and community level, which stakeholders are not currently involved in discussions about improving public health in America and who should be? You know, the private business community is in and out of the discussion and they're not at the table as much as, they, as I think they need to be. Um, you know, having a healthy community, a healthy business, and a healthy business climate are um, together. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're the, one of the biggest costs of most businesses now uh, is the cost of their health insurance coverage, um, that's the supports they provide as they benefit to their employees. Um, and the best way to reduce your health care costs is to have a healthy people, not by cherry picking your employees. You want to get the best minds and talent that you can, but by providing them good coverage, providing them a lot of preventive care and services as part of that package, and then in your legislative lobbying, your policy development as a business, as a community member, um, contributing um, to those things that we know um, from a societal perspective promote health. So for example, it's great to go in and advocate for more mental health services and more substance abuse services. That's absolutely uh, important to do. But we know that reducing the density of liquor stores in a community um, is uh, one way to improve the health and well-being of that community. Doing urban renewal, getting rid of the broken down cars and things on the street. Um, we know that there's some great studies by a guy named Charlie Brannis that has looked at um, impoverished communities with a lot of disrepair having more violence. Um, we know that um, urban heat islands, um, you know, the temperature goes up, violence goes up. There's a correlation there. And there are ways for us to really cool communities. Um, it's not the only solution. It's a piece of it. There's a whole lot of things we can do um, in a productive way if we plan for them and we're more thoughtful about them. What are some of the more innovative and hopeful changes uh, you've seen over the past two years as it pertains to health equity? Well, I think the first most hopeful thing is, of course, is everybody's talking about it. Um, you know, we used to have to say it quietly because we were afraid we would offend somebody. Now we don't have to do that. We can say racism out loud. The world doesn't fall apart. The ground doesn't open up. Um, we can talk about racism as a public health problem. We have to name it first as our first issue. We have to recognize it when we see it, um, call it out. 
Um, and then we have to do those things that are structural that create inequities that, that are very important. So I think, first of all, the fact that people are recognizing it. There is pushback. There are people who want to deny it. There are people who are afraid for a variety of reasons that it will offend people. Um, and, you know, I, I, I get it that some people may be uncomfortable, but there are a lot of, a lot of things that are uncomfortable um, in life, and uh, people are just going to have to get over that um, because those disparities, if they're uncomfortable with someone using the word inequities or racism or disparity, they ought to be uncomfortable with the outcomes uh, of, those, of those bad outcomes, um, of, 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 the, of the way people get treated. And they need to behave appropriately. So that's the first thing. Second thing I is, is that people are looking for creative solutions. Um, they're, they're going in, they're looking at existing policies, they're changing those policies. Um, people are beginning to study it. There are evidence-based solutions to things. Um, we're beginning to ask questions um, and not just assume people did things for the right reasons or did them right. Um, so, you know, when you when you um, are going to buy a home, um, you should be you should demand that you get the same opportunities for a, a loan and an affordable loan as anyone else who walked in with your same financial status. Um, that's going to be very important. So I think that there are many things we can do to do that. So that's, you know, um, demanding equity in each and everything. I, I think that's another hopeful sign that people are much more accepting of that. I think finally, the, um, you know, money, the way where you spend your money is policy. And we're beginning to see uh, people spending the money that's necessary for us to, to correct some of these historical inequities. Um, and I think we need more of that, but those three things make me more hopeful. You addressed social media during the keynote and the need for uh, trusted messengers to relay health information to Americans. With uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccinations rolling out now for children aged uh, six months and older, uh, what else should pediatricians and public health officials be doing to encourage uptake and fight back against misinformation by anti-vaccine forces? You know, we have, first thing we have to assume is that um, people actually know what the vaccine is, how it's made. Um, the practitioners need to make sure that they are well informed about this vaccine. This is the, it is the same formulation in terms of the same type of vaccine that um, the adults get, but it's a much lower dose. And they need to understand what that dose is and why that is. They need to be able to explain that to patients. Um, they also need to you know, understand the fact that you know, there are mild side effects of any medication. And they need to be fully versed on those so they can explain those to patients and their families, uh, parents in particular up front, particularly these are little kids. Um, I think that's important. We know there's a group of people out there who are purposely putting disinformation into the conversation. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that the regulators have got to address that specifically. What we can do as a field is that we can put um, good information out there so that we're, um, you know, marketing is all about competing. So we can put good messages out there that are, uh, are better um, than those poor messages about disinformation, and I think people will hear us. Um, I think we also have to continue to build trust. Trust is not something you build up overnight. Um, good news is that most parents have a trusting relationship with their child's pediatrician. 
So the vast majority of these shots are probably going to be given in pediatric offices. Uh, but some people um, are going to CVS and, you know, Walgreens and, uh, you know, the urgent care centers um, that were involved in the vaccine distribution before um, because they're in the community, they're convenient, and the adults got their shots there, and, and they trust those those providers, and that's, that's okay. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, but those providers, just like the physician community, have got to make sure that their their information is correct, that they're you know, giving their best advice, um, and that it's not kind of a one-off relationship because those kids are important. And they need to make sure that the record of the kid getting their vaccination gets to the primary care provider for that kid, um, whoever that, that is. That's going to be absolutely essential. So there's good continuity of care. And was there anything else from your keynote uh, that you'd like to spotlight further? I think we talked a little bit about um, telemedicine and telehealth and the fact that, um, you know, we were all kind of a little reluctant to do it, mostly because of cost. People were afraid that it would drive up health care costs. Um, we were forced to do it during COVID. It turns out that it, would, it had some value. Um, we need to better understand what value it had. We, we ought to recognize that people measure outcomes very differently. Um, if I don't have to get in the car and drive to a doctor's office and I can, I can stick an appointment in between two other things I have to do, for me, as a busy professional, they have enormous value for me. Um, the last thing I need for them you know, to go in is for them to say hi to me and write me a prescription and you know, no exam. That's a waste of my time, right? Um, so I can go in and get a visit, connect with my physician through a telemedicine appointment. It's very important. I do think that came out in our discussion, though, is that everybody doesn't have that opportunity. And again, there are disparities in access to telemedicine, Wi-Fi, computers. Um, there's disparities in one skill set, particularly among older Americans, um, in, in utilizing those tools. And so it is going to require an affirmative effort to use telemedicine as a, a um, as a tool uh, effectively. And we need to make sure that we're measuring outcomes so that people are um, real clear uh, what the outcomes were. And we need to measure things that are important and make sure that we're measuring the important stuff. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Dr. Benjamin. <laughs> thank you. To learn more about this issue, Visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.